One of the great islands of the world in mid-sea, in the wine-dark sea, is Crete. Spacious and rich and populous, with ninety cities and a mingling of tongues. And one among their ninety towns is Knossos. Here lived King Minos, whom great Zeus received every ninth year in private council. A reading from the Odyssey, Book 19. first people to inhabit Crete, this island amid the wine-dark sea, as Homer so eloquently put it thousands of years ago. The well-considered opinions of experts have varied over the years. Crete presents a unique situation for our interests, for this extended study of the Western traditions. It is an island, so it is initially hard to imagine prehistoric men living here, since they would have needed seagoing ships and a fair amount of knowledge about sailing and seafaring skills to cross from the mainland. For a long time, it was believed that Paleolithic humans may have made short crossings on rafts to islands near coastal areas, but no true sea crossing, where one loses sight of land, was thought to have occurred before 12,000 BC. However, anthropologists have recently made discoveries that suggest that the human presence on Crete goes as far back as 130,000 BC at least, with one researcher even presenting evidence of fossilized footprints dating back more than five million years. Such evidence, if verified, would mean that ancient hominids, possibly even Homo erectus, were actually living on Crete before early modern humans came. There is also speculation that there were Neanderthals inhabiting the island at one time. Now, these latter positions are controversial, but nevertheless, there is growing consensus that Homo sapiens, anyway, anatomically modern humans, probably inhabited the island long before the previously accepted period of human habitation beginning around 7,000 BC. Of course, it is not necessarily true that humans were sailing over 100,000 years ago just because we find the remains on an island. We know that sea levels have changed drastically over the years, and while they may not have lowered enough to create a land bridge to Crete, the landscape of the Mediterranean certainly might have been significantly different at various periods in the Paleolithic, perhaps bringing Crete closer to the mainland or even bringing strings of islands to the surface, between which even Paleolithic men and women could have traveled on simple rafts. However it happened, we know that early European Neolithic farmers were on the island by 7,000 BC at the latest, when signs of early Minoan civilization begin to turn up. Now, we have looked into the origins of the Egyptians, the Semites of Mesopotamia, and the Indo-Europeans of the Central Asian steppes, But who were these early European farmers that came to Crete, whenever they came? Many episodes ago, I discussed the origins of agriculture in Mesopotamia, in the Levant, and in Anatolia. There are many theories about where and when agriculture was invented or devised. Most scholars of the subject agree that agriculture was not invented in a single time and location before spreading from that point alone to the rest of the world. Instead, it appears that agriculture was invented independently several times around the globe and adopted by different people in different ways. As proof simply of the possibility of such independent and multiple sites of origin, one needs only consider the Native Americans, who, separated by such great gulfs from other agricultural societies in the Old World, began farming the distinct crops found in the New World without any inside or outside input. 
It does seem likely, though, that the early modern humans living in Europe some 10,000 years ago, hunter-gatherers all, did not develop agriculture on their own. Studies of remains and their genetics indicate that agriculture most likely spread into Europe from Anatolia, and it did so via immigration or conquest. The burgeoning populations of the farmers from Anatolia and the Levant expanded their realms into Europe slowly but steadily, and essentially replaced the hunter-gatherers previously living there. Now, this is prior to the arrival of the Indo-European speakers that would begin to arrive thousands of years later, so the population of Europe was replaced more than once, but remnants of the DNA of these early hunter-gatherers and the farmers that replaced them are still found in the blood of the modern population, which is mostly, but not entirely, descended from the Indo-European speakers that began to spread into Europe about 5,000 years ago. Anyway, the people of ancient Crete were apparently most closely related to the Neolithic farmers living contemporaneously with them in Europe. One way or another, their European ancestors had gotten over to the island and brought agriculture with them. Now, I had contemplated saving this episode for the series on ancient Greek history, which will follow the ending of this series of podcasts in spring of this year. That is because, as you will see when I describe the downfall of the Minoan civilization that arose on Crete during the 2nd millennium BC, there is a clear connection between the culture of ancient Crete and the culture of the first recognizably Greek figures in myth and history. However, I ultimately decided to include Crete in this unit on the ancient Near East for a couple of reasons. Primarily, I recognized modern research which shows that genetically, the Minoans were not Greeks, nor were they related to any of the other people that we have seen acting on the stage of Near Eastern history so far. Rather, they are the shining star of the Neolithic farmers of Europe, who otherwise do not make a splash in the written annals of history, the remains of their bodies and their settlements in Europe being the only testimony of their existence. Now, when I turn to the Greeks later this year, I will continue to narrow the scope of this podcast, focusing on the Greeks and the Romans and the European pagans and Christians that follow them, on the long path that leads now to the modern Western world. And there will be little, if anything, to say about the people who inhabited Europe before the Indo-European speakers sweep in, as they do just about now, in the 2nd millennium BC, when the Minoan civilization is just rising. But I have set aside this episode to give some space, some recognition, to these people, the Neolithic farmers of Europe, who inhabit a mysterious location in the story of European and Western culture, Their contribution to our history is not written, but it is palpable. They are there. Their input is felt, even though we may not always be able to specifically identify it. Imagine, if you will, a curtain hanging between two groups groups of people. On this side, we have ourselves, as well as our cultural ancestors, the Greeks, the Romans, the medieval Europeans, and so on, speakers of Indo-European languages all. The Neolithic farmers are on the other side of the curtain, and among them are not just the Minoans of Crete, but the Etruscans of Bronze Age Italy, and the people who built Stonehenge, and a myriad of others whom we know little or nothing about, their anonymous remains and ruins scattered across the ancient European countryside. Standing as they are on the other side of the curtain, you might ask, what significance do they have for those of us on this side of the curtain? We cannot see them, cannot feel them, cannot communicate with them. But you see, they press their faces, their bodies against the curtain. We see their outlines. We mimic their poses. We can caress, if we wish, those forms pressing through the curtain, gather some vague idea of their shape, their appearance. We will never know them, 
but the curtain outlining their forms has become a tapestry and this our home, and we cannot decorate the space in which we live now without reference, without reliance in some way, on the contours and the designs that they established. Soon, very soon in the timeline that I have laid down for this podcast, all these people will be swept away by the, Indo- by the Indo-European tide that is washing over the continent in the second millennium BC. There are remnants of them everywhere, though. As I stated, genetic research has determined that modern Europeans still carry some DNA from these peoples in their blood. And in places like the island of Sardinia, off the coast of the ancient Etruscan homeland, we may have their direct physical descendants. Nevertheless, these ancient Europeans will not play more than minor ephemeral roles in the play that is unfolding before us. So let us devote this episode, and perhaps a portion of one or more in the coming podcast series, to the cultural expressions of these cousins of ours and the immense human family, whose western branch will plant roots in Europe and grow in fits and starts as it establishes our western traditions. One look at the landscape and climate of Crete, and we can understand right away why people of any era, ours included, would have made efforts to reach this oasis amid the bare landscape of the surrounding Mediterranean Sea. Rising from the depths of the wine-dark sea, Crete is a mountainous place. Like most islands, the peaks of a submersed mountain range dominate its landscape. However, it is not an unwelcoming place. The land and the climate of the time, the second millennium BC, were good for both agriculture and for game. Now, like much of Europe and the Near East, lands long populated by humans, Crete is today somewhat denuded of its original forest cover. The first agricultural colonists from the mainland, presumably replacing whoever else might have lived there prior to them, whether they were Homo sapien hunter-gatherers, Neanderthals, or other hominids, These newly arrived agriculturalists probably practiced the standard slash and burn practice to clear the land, churning the ashes of the burnt trees and undergrowth into the soil to make a rich loam into which they could sow their crops. Nevertheless, dense forests remained for a long time and into the historical period. And little needs to be said about the climate. Sitting at the southern extremity of the Aegean Sea, Crete enjoys the weather that makes places like Greece and Italy such popular tourist destinations today. A warm summer, relieved by ocean breezes, and a mild winter. Rain falls in sufficient quantity to support a wide variety of crops and fruit-bearing trees throughout the year. Needless to say, the island of Crete was a paradise just in terms of its environment for the inhabitants. Now, Crete stretches from east to west, 160 miles in length, varying in width anywhere from 7 to 37 miles, girded with many beautiful beaches, adorned with excellent bays to serve as ports for ships, and yet big enough for both mountain ranges and expansive fields for cultivation. Now, we could imagine, as as did some scholars, such as Will Durant, without knowing for certain, that there was initially a good deal of conflict on the island between the various cities mentioned by Homer in the Odyssey, However, I have spoken before about a modern propensity to imagine war in the past without relying on evidence. There is something of a modern agenda to depict the past as a brutish place full of violence and disease that is not relieved until the enlightenment of modernity comes. 
However, one definitely has to question the accuracy of such perspectives, coming as they do from people who, like the rest of us, live in the wake of the 20th century, when wars and revolutions killed hundreds of millions of people. Myself, I do not doubt that there was conflict on the island of Crete. However, I do doubt our present ability to quantify the violence of the inhabitants' lives. However it was, the early inhabitants of the island of Crete got along in their various city-states however they did. But we do know that by the second millennium BC, the island was unified under one ruler who lived at Knossos, that's K-N-O-S-S-O-S, Knossos, a city close to the coast, roughly midway along the long northern shore of the island. Archaeology demonstrates that Knossos was an opulent capital, full of palatial buildings, as high as four stories tall, which was close to the limit of engineering with the materials and tools of the Bronze Age. Indeed, the island was littered with such palaces, again showing that Crete at this time was not some backwater playing second fiddle to the civilizations of the Near East, but was a capable and wealthy power of its own. And many of these buildings were serviced with indoor plumbing, Yes, over 3,000 years ago, the Minoans, the wealthy ones anyway, possessed running water so vital to sanitation and to health when living in densely populated cities. It is in the capital, though, in Knossos, that we find the greatest and finest edifice of all, an immense complex built of precisely cut stone blocks, joined deftly and without the use of mortar, 20,000 square feet of hallways and chambers for everyone from the king to the servants, bedrooms, throne room, workshops, stairways, and a dungeon. It is a maze-like structure, and it is widely believed that this was the palace of the King of Crete, and that this was also probably the inspiration for the story of the Minotaur's Labyrinth from Greek mythology. Until this discovery in the ruins of Knossos, the story of the Minotaur was presumed, by the usual suspects, to be cut from whole cloth, a fairy tale invented by men for one purpose or another, but time and again, archaeology has revealed to us that the greatest stories of our past find their roots not in the minds of men, but in history itself, in truth, if not in fact. The labyrinth at Knossos is another testimony to the kernel of truth in one of the treasured portions of our Western traditions. Now, why is it called a labyrinth? This maze in which the mythological minotaur dwelled and brooded on his monstrous fate and waited for his victims. According to one interpretation, the word labrys comes from a Lydian word that describes a double-headed axe, which was the symbol of the Minoan king. The Lydians were a people who inhabited a portion of Anatolia after the Hittites had lost their preeminence there. Thus, in this story, we see ties back to Anatolia and the Indo-European Indo peoples there, and we also see ties that reach forward to Greece, in which the story of the Minotaur will shape the identity of the Athenians who will take center stage for us much of the time in the next podcast series on Ancient Greece. Now, many of us are already familiar with the story of the Minotaur, but I will briefly relate it here. Minos, spelled M-I-N-O-S, was reputedly a great king of Crete. In fact, we call this ancient civilization of the second millennium BC the Minoan civilization because when this society was first uncovered a century or so ago, the archaeologists and historians realized immediately that they were digging up the remains of the Cretan society referred to in Greek myth, over which Minos had once been king, according to legend. Now, according to the story, Minos had great troubles siring any heirs until he wedded with a woman named Pasiphae. Each of the characters in this myth has quite a story already attached to them with regards to their family history. 
as all great men and women of Greek mythology tend to have divine forebears. But we will save those stories for the Greek series. Importantly here, Minos was not just any king, but was directly in contact with the gods and took their counsel with regards to matters of state. Every nine years, they reappointed him as king over the Isle of Crete. Sounds familiar, right? We might think perhaps of the Egyptian pharaohs associating themselves with the gods in the public eye, or of Hammurabi in Babylon, invoking the gods as the source of his law. According to the story, anyway, Minos was expected to sacrifice the finest bull of his herd to Poseidon once every year. In return, naturally, he would receive the favor of the god. But Minos, one, one year, could not bear to sacrifice a particularly fine bull, and so he substituted another. Now, we should stop and recognize at this point a recurring theme that you are probably already catching on to. And that is the story of a god or gods asking humans to follow one simple rule in exchange for blessings in this natural life. In the story of the Garden of Eden, for example, the choice is easy and simple. Just don't eat that forbidden fruit. In the story of Minos, it is also easy, especially for a king as wealthy as Minos was reputed to be. Sacrifice one bull, and though it be the finest you have, it is worth it in order to secure the varied and multiple blessings of the gods in the remainder of your life and situation. But Minos cannot bring himself to do that. Looking ahead to the Greek series, perhaps a, a better and more familiar example is that of Pandora's box, in which all that is necessary to preserve the well-being of humanity is to resist opening a mere box. But unable to resist temptation in these stories, humans always unleash the trouble and suffer the consequences. Perhaps when we come to the Greek series, we will delve into what these stories mean and why they might have been told. But for the time being, let us just note this vein of literary ore streaking through the landscape of human mythology, this similar point being made by our ancestors again and again. Anyway, Poseidon, god of the sea, chooses an unusual way to teach Minos a lesson about trying to deceive the gods. Instead of bluntly lashing out at the king, Poseidon causes Minos's wife, Pasiphae, to become enamored of the bull which he did not sacrifice. Now, I have tried to keep this podcast family-friendly, so I will allow you to look up the details, but let it suffice to say that Daedalus, the famous architect and all-around genius of Greek mythology, designed a hollow wooden cow that allowed Pasiphae to disguise herself and consummate a relationship with the bull. The minotaur is the product of this strange union. And you thought there was weird stuff on the internet. Anyway, according to myth, Pasiphae's child was a hideous creature that was half man, half bull. Typically, the minotaur is depicted as having the body of a tall, strong man and the head and horns of a bull. There are other ways to imagine his form, including something more like a centaur, only with a bull's body instead of a horse's and a man's torso extending from where the neck and head would normally be. But however he was shaped, the minotaur was quite unlike a bull in that he was not an herbivore. He required human flesh to satisfy his hunger. So Minos ordered Daedalus, apparently always available to carry out the royal family's unusual requests, to provide assistance once again in constructing a maze, a labyrinth, in which to hide his wife's frightful offspring. Now, there are many more details in the story of the myth, including a series of events uh, which results in the city of Athens having to deliver seven young men and seven young women each year in order to be fed to this minotaur. And this leads into one of the myths about the Athenian hero Theseus, who defeats the minotaur and escapes Crete with Ariadne, the beautiful daughter of the king. But... There will be more on that when we get into Greek mythology during the next podcast series. 
There is something else interesting, though, about the stories of King Minos. Some scholars of myths, Greek and otherwise, draw a connection between the name and or characterization of this king in the stories and the prominent figures from myths of other cultures. For example, the name of the great king of Egyptian legend, the first to unite the land under one crown, was Menes, not far off in pronunciation from Minos. And I have already mentioned how scholars see multiple cultural connections between Egypt and ancient Crete. Furthermore, in ancient German myths, according to the Roman writer Tacitus, there was a Manus, who was the divine founder of their people. And the Hindus of India tell of a Manu in a variety of ways, with the understanding that all men descend from someone named Manu. Remember, both German and Hindu cultures, distinct as they might seem to someone who has not investigated the language connections, both of these cultures descend from the same Proto-Indo-European forebears that roamed the steppes of Central Asia 5,000 years ago. These and other connections drawn between the Cretan Minos and the gods and heroes from other mythologies with similar names may have something to them, or they may be stretching the imagination just a bit too much. However, I, I draw attention to it just to show that the mythology and religious belief are far from simple things and are never really contained within just one culture. Each religion or culture or mythology draws on sources from other, in, other, in other cultures to one extent or another. Now, this Greek myth about King Minos does not tell us much in detail about Cretan society. The ancient Greeks certainly admired ancient Crete for its wealth and feared its maritime power. That is obvious from the Homeric passage with which I opened this episode. However, this admiration and fear, clear from the most ancient writings of Homer, is something felt only by the most ancient Greeks. For the classical Greeks, such as Pericles and Socrates, Crete was just another island in the Aegean. The greatness of Minoan civilization belongs to the second millennium BC, when the ancient Greek culture which we prize was only just coming into existence. Among the Mycenaeans, and the culture with which, with which I will begin the next series of podcasts, Indeed, the stories about King Minos harken back to a time in which groups of people whom we might recognize as Proto-Greek were still establishing themselves on the Greek peninsula, having emigrated from the Proto-Indo-European homeland on the Central Asian steppes of the last thousand years. We will come back to these Proto-Greeks soon when I describe the fall of the Minoan civilization at the end of this episode. It is hard to truly determine anything about the Minoan culture because we cannot consult written records about them. It is not that they were too primitive to develop writing, though. The Minoans did have writing, but their script, their method of writing, known to researchers today as Linear A, that's L-I-N-E-A-R, Linear A, remains completely undecipherable to modern interpreters. That is quite a statement when we have deciphered most of the ancient Egyptian and Sumerian hieroglyphs and cuneiform. But the mystery behind Minoan writing is not due to any kind of purposeful complexity in the ancient scripts that have turned up in the ruins on Crete. No, it appears that, just like the ancient Cretans themselves, their most ancient writing system is not related to the alphabets, syllabaries, and hieroglyphs used by the Egyptians, the Mesopotamians, or the Indo-Europeans in Anatolia. These descendants of the Neolithic farmers that colonized the island thousands of years before apparently developed a system of writing based on their language independently of those other advanced cultures, and that makes it much harder to discover the meaning behind the characters of their writing. We only learned how to read Egyptian when the Rosetta Stone was fortunately discovered a couple centuries ago. On the surface of that stone slab are decrees 
of the Greek pharaohs from the 2nd century BC. We'll discuss how Greeks could become pharaohs sometime in the next year or two. But anyway, the decrees on this ancient stone slab are written in Egyptian and then translated into ancient Greek. And since modern linguists still have knowledge of ancient Greek, they were able to backwards decipher the Egyptian hieroglyphs. Until such a message is found, though, containing text in both Linear A and a language that has not been forgotten, we will probably remain ignorant of the meaning of all the writing found in the Minoan ruins. Now, there are scripts used in the Aegean Sea at this time and later, such as Linear B, a script which has been deciphered and is probably related to early Greek. But Linear A remains mysterious to us today. Should this script ever be deciphered, there would possibly be a great revealing of many things about the Minoans that we still do not understand. Furthermore, it might tell us something about the lost languages of those Neolithic farmers who ruled Europe before our Indo-European-speaking ancestors arrived and either conquered or assimilated their cultures. Since we do not understand their writing, we can only make guesses based on art and common sense when it comes to imagining what kind of culture the Minoans possessed, what kind of people they were, how they looked, how they thought of themselves. But let there be no doubt, by the second millennium BC, this was a sophisticated society, engaging in, even dominating, regional trade and producing great and numerous artworks. Among the artwork, we find numerous depictions of the bull-leaping sport, which I mentioned in the episode on the Hittites. In the painted figures, performing acrobatic feats about the bulls that charge around the curving surface of the vases and jars and other decorated containers, we can also see how the Minoans thought of themselves, how they dressed, how they appeared. They wore little in the way of clothing and appear to be bare above the waist pretty frequently. The splendid climate of the island was no doubt responsible for this lack of concern about dressing, though nobles appear to ornament themselves with fine raiments. The women are typically shown to be fair-skinned, and the men darker, due possibly to pursuing a living outdoors. Under the Mediterranean sun, all are razor-thin, narrow-waisted, graceful in appearance. Both sexes wear their hair long. The men, in contrast to the bearded Greeks who will follow them in mastery over the Aegean Sea, the Cretan men are clean-shaven. This clean-shavenness is one of the several cultural traits that confuses historians who try to pigeonhole the ancient Minoans. Many aspects of their culture are Mesopotamian or Asian in some way, but their clean-shaven appearance seems Egyptian. And stone vases and copper weapons found in the earliest Minoan ruins also seem to mimic Egyptian styles. But the Minoans wrote their mysterious script on clay tablets, which is reminiscent of the Sumerians, And they appear, according to what we can decipher from their religious art, to have worshipped a mother goddess and a bull god of some sort, as did Indo-European cultures in Anatolia, such as the Phrygians, whose realm came into being in the first millennium BC after the Hittites had faded away. Now, about Minoan religion, truly little is known. There is some consensus that in ancient Crete there was most likely the worship of a mother goddess and a bull god, as mentioned above. This consensus comes from the widespread depiction of what appears to be such gods on the surface of extant Cretan art from this time period. Now, by worship of a bull, it is not necessarily meant that they worshipped bulls, but rather that their primary male god may have been represented by a bull. We hear echoes of this in both Greek and Egyptian myths in which the gods disguise themselves as bulls. The mother goddess would probably have been a truly primordial figure of devotion, and the episodes on the prehistoric 
I discussed a few fragments of religious devotion, which we have termed up in the European Paleolithic excavations, and among them were the various figurines of grossly swollen female shapes. Is the goddess of the Minoans the same goddess, still holding sway over the hearts and minds of the Neolithic European farmers all the way down into the 2nd millennium BC, when the Mesopotamians and the Egyptians had already developed their complex pantheons of war gods, fertility gods, storm gods, sea gods, sky gods, and so on? We must await the deciphering of Linear A in order to find out more. Until then, we have only painted stone and ceramic surfaces in the horned altars on which they have sacrificed bulls to tell us in stark terms the fundamental concepts, the viscera, that is, of their religious ideas. Some scholars speculate that on Crete there was a theocracy associated with the kingship. This would make sense, given what we know about other early urban civilizations in which the state preserved its integrity with the building blocks of religion, but we cannot know for sure. Do we know anything for sure about the Minoans? We know that they preceded the Phoenicians in their control of shipping and maritime commerce in the Egyptian and in the Levant. Archaeologists have discovered signs of the Minoans as far away as Cyprus in the eastern Mediterranean, where they likely traded for copper. It is also speculated that, after political unification, the island did not need an army, protected from invasion as it was by the sea. Ships could cross the distance between Crete and the mainland, but few could do it as well as the Minoans, and none could do so in force, at least not during the first half of the second millennium BC. So the island enjoyed a freedom from predation. Pirates, furthermore, were the first threat eliminated after kings came to rule over the island entire, so there was little to fear from the sea in general. Instead, the surrounding waters of the Mediterranean could be counted on to bring abundant sea life to the dinner table and all variety of shells, skins, and other oceanic items to adorn the home prettily and to lighten the hearts of men and women living there. And returning traders safely brought back exotic wares to the island from faraway places like Egypt and Canaan, where the goods of distant Mesopotamia might also be found waiting for buyers. Truly, there must have been an air of paradise about the island when visitors came from other lands less well-protected and more prone to internal dissension and strife. But, like any paradise, the peace of Crete was precarious and doomed to eventual downfall. And it would take more than one harmful blow to the constitution of Minoan society, however, to bring it completely down. In the next segment, let us investigate the first disaster that would overtake the Minoans midway through the 2nd millennium BC. The eruption of the volcano at Thera, which would, along with the tsunami that followed, devastate a good portion of the coast and possibly weaken the island kingdom enough to make it vulnerable to the second disaster that would fall upon it a century or two later. With good reason, the ancient peoples of the Mediterranean Greeks and others, worshipped a god of volcanoes. Not entirely dormant today, these explosive mountains that dot the map of the Mediterranean here and there appear to have been much more active in the past. However, Mount Etna in Sicily and Mount Vesuvius in mainland Italy, two of the most dangerous, continue to actively erupt, even in our present day. The activity of volcanoes in the ancient world is probably also responsible for the great emphasis on wrathful sea gods, 
Certainly, with sailing being such a crucial part of Mediterranean life, there would have always been a desire to plead favors of some ambiguous sea god or goddess. However, the tsunamis that volcanic explosions and earthquakes sometimes unleashed on unprepared populaces certainly generated additional fear and respect for the ocean and the sudden violence of the natural world. Now, lacking translation of their Linear A texts, though, we do not know for sure if the Minoans worshipped a god of the sea or of earthquakes or volcanoes, Perhaps that was the bailiwick of their bull god, or perhaps they sacrificed bulls to placate and propitiate such gods. But sacrifices are no, the gods of disaster were not appeased, not forever anyway. One day, sometime around the year 1600 BC, the Cretan people and the people of smaller surrounding islands and islets went about their daily activities, cooking meals, hoisting sails aboard ships, playing with children, setting out wares and the produce of the land for sale, or going out to till the fields, and so on. Hundreds of kilometers to the north of Crete, across open ocean, those closest to the island known now as Santorini never even heard what caused their sudden demise. As we say today when discussing the lethality of a possible nuclear explosion, they were the lucky ones. It is known today as the Thera eruption, a vast underwater volcano exploded and nearly consumed the entire island of Santorini. If you are listening to this podcast today, you may have seen video of the recent Tonga eruption, which washed away homes and lives on and lives on the Pacific Islands near Tonga. Some have compared the strength of the eruption at Tonga to the 19th century eruption of Krakatoa, which remains the most powerful volcanic eruption recorded in historical times. However, Recent research estimates that the eruption of Thera was actually four times stronger than Krakatoa. For those of us who are not experts, this is a hard matter to judge, even when the volcanologists throw numbers at us, that Thera may have ejected over 100 cubic kilometers of matter into the atmosphere. That certainly sounds like something apocalyptic, but until you have witnessed it, you probably can't evaluate it. And if you witness such a thing, you probably won't ever have the chance to tell anybody about it. Needless to say, the people living on the northern shores of the island of Crete would certainly have heard the explosion. The Tonga explosion of 2022 was heard as far away as Alaska. We can only imagine what the Thera eruption sounded like. Like an angry god, perhaps. Later, we must ask ourselves, what did they think when the ocean receded from the shore? It is not known if the people of that time had a good understanding of the dynamics of earthquakes and tsunamis. We have seen, even in our own day, in 2004, when a tsunami wreaked destruction on the coastlines of the Indian Ocean, even in our own day, people do not well understand these matters, and many lost their lives when they might have saved them merely by reacting appropriately to the signs of coming tidal waves. The waves, when they came, would have been swift and powerful. They swept away not only beautiful homes and the face of the landscape, but also a people and a culture. There is no estimate of the damage to be reviewed, no idea of how many deaths might have resulted, how many dreams may have remained just that, immaterial thoughts about the future that never came to fruition because the thinker was buried under meters of mud or sent streaming and unconscious into the wide open ocean. The tsunami, however, did not destroy or end Minoan civilization. Archaeology reveals that, above the layer of mud which covered the former edifices and settlements on the Cretan coast, the locals rebuilt quickly and did so marvelously. And of course, 
It would have only been the north coast that would have been damaged by the tsunami, though this destructive wave would have been larger and faster than anything like we have seen in recent years, in the Indian Ocean in 2004 or in Japan in 2011. Still, all evidence points to the survival of Minoan civilization and a renewed flourishing in the decades after the eruption. Timing the disaster accurately is not easy, and it is a matter of much debate in historical circles. There are no written records to consult about the matter from Crete, but there are signs found in the records of other cultures around the world, which have helped researchers narrow down the possibilities to the decades sometime before or after 1600 BC. Now, while we do not have access to Minoan records on the disaster, we can look to the history of other advanced civilizations and to regional mythologies for some help with estimating the approximate era in which it happened. Studying the connection between the Thera eruption and other historical events makes for some interesting speculation as well. Now, in the ancient world, rulers sometimes erected a stele, S-T-E-L-E, stele, to commemorate some event. A stele was typically a tall stone slab upon whose surface a message or announcement of some sort was written. It might relate the outcome of a, ba of a battle or the accession of a king or some other weighty matter. The Rosetta Stone, mentioned earlier in this episode, was just such a steel. In Egypt, during the reign of Amos I, the founder of the New Kingdom, who brought Egypt out of the anarchy of its second intermediate period, during this time the Egyptians erected a steel which appeared to commemorate a great reconstruction and restoration project undertaken by the king. The steel further relates that many temples and other great works of architecture were previously destroyed by a storm that sounds downright apocalyptic in dimension. Some historians have suggested that this steel is describing the events that would have reached Egypt after the volcanic eruption at Thera, that at the very least the climate would have drastically changed in the Mediterranean, if not the entire globe, for some time after such a powerful volcanic eruption, and that the Egyptians would have experienced storms just as those described on the Tempest steel as the famous steel is now known to historians. The only problem with this theory is that the eruption at Thera is known, with scientific certainty, to have taken place sometime in the century before Amos I was king over Egypt. The Egyptian timeline, however, is still disputed, though, and it has been subject to revision over the years, it is always possible that errors in the timing of either or both events, the eruption and the rule of Amos, would allow for the erection of the Tempest Steel and the Thera eruption to have been contemporary. And as always with massive natural disasters in prehistory, we can have a lot of fun with trying to make connections between different events and stories from the past. The potential connections to Greek mythology are pretty interesting. Some scholars suggest that Hesiod, a Greek writer about whom we will learn more in the next series on ancient Greece, Scholars suggest that Hesiod wrote of the Thera eruption when he described a war between the Titans, which occurred prior to the time of the gods traditionally associated with the ancient Greeks, Zeus, Poseidon, Athena, and so on. They suggest that this writer used a cultural memory, some seven or eight centuries old by the time Hesiod wrote, of the turbulent weather in the Aegean Sea that would have resulted from the volcanic blast, and he attributed it to the wars among the gods. Others think that Socrates, when he spoke of Atlantis in Plato's dialogues, may have been passing on a distorted recollection of this time period in which an advanced and noble island civilization, which the Greeks admired, suddenly succumbed to a natural disaster. Besides the lack of evidence for this theory, it also suffers from the reality that Minoan civilization was not destroyed, as far as we can tell, by this event, but only set back a little before it revived and flourished again. 
There is another theory that Egypt was destabilized by the eruption and its aftermath, and that the Israelites, as related in the Exodus, took advantage of the confusion and chaos to depart Egypt. Furthermore, some of the plagues described in the Exodus, which the Lord unleashes on the stubborn, unnamed Pharaoh and his subjects, these plagues, as described, might be memories of the meteorological and other natural events that could have followed the Thur eruption. In a similar vein, some thinkers posit that the Hyksos, as described in the last episode, were able to assume power in northern Egypt due to the disorder caused by the eruption and the temporary climatic change that followed. Like the Black Sea Flood, the Younger Dryas Impact, the Toba Eruption, and other natural disasters of prehistory, there are many ways in which our ancestors may or may not have recalled this event and stored its details in myth or in more concrete fashion, such as the Tempest Steel in Egypt. However it is or is not remembered, the Thur Eruption did not end the Minoan civilization. Archaeology demonstrates that the Minoans recovered and resumed a proud and capable position in the eastern Mediterranean in the century that followed. Above the layers of mud and volcanic ash buried deep beneath the present-day topsoil are more recent ruins, and they show a culture once again thriving. However, the Thuran eruption may have weakened Cretan society permanently in one way or another. What seemed to be an impregnable island fortress at the beginning of the second millennium BC became vulnerable, apparently, after the volcanic eruption and tsunami. Doubtless, ash fall and climate change would have interrupted the normal harvest of food on the island, and it would have impacted populations of both game and herds, causing starvation for many of the island's populace and forcing the kingdom to rely more heavily on imports from places that were probably also affected by the changes after Thera, and so would have had little to spare. Reconstruction, as demonstrably did happen, also would have required massive amounts of lumber and possibly contributed to the deforestation of the once heavily wooded isle, as is evidenced today now that Crete is a much barer, dustier place than it was prior to human habitation. All these factors would have made the Minoan hegemony of the region a much more precarious position to maintain. And then, sometime after the eruption, we are not sure exactly when because the timeline in Crete and in many areas of the eastern Mediterranean becomes confused in the latter half of the second millennium BC. Sometime in the century that followed the eruption, another event stressed Minoan civilization to the breaking point. The Mycenaeans, a people living in mainland Greece, crossed the Aegean Sea in their own ships, burned the palaces of Crete to the ground, and sacked the ruins of this great, if struggling, society. Hesitant to subscribe to the violent invasion hypothesis in prior cases, I have to admit that this time, invasion is probably the explanation for the downfall of the Minoan civilization. Above the layer of renewed civilization and the Cretan archaeological digs is another layer of burned ruins. And the historical evidence points not to a natural disaster, but rather to a human culprit, the Mycenaeans. The Mycenaeans originated, in the immediate sense, from mainland Greece, from the Peloponnesian Peninsula. I will describe in a future podcast how their ancestors came down the west coast of the Black Sea and into the Balkans in the preceding centuries, speaking an Indo-European dialect that would become, over the centuries, ancient Greek. 
Now, the Mycenaeans are, in one way or another, the main characters of the famous Homeric poems, the Iliad and the Odyssey. Homer most likely wrote his works sometime around the 8th or 9th century BC. We can get into the controversy surrounding Homer's identity and authorship when we come to those episodes, probably sometime toward the end of this year. But in the meantime, it is simply worth noting that Homer, when he wrote the Iliad anyway, wrote about the Mycenaean adventures, which included the war against Troy. He wrote this from a perspective of maybe five or six centuries later. Now, all this will be important when we come to discussing the Mycenaeans in detail, but I wanted to establish this important link between the Ancient World series, which we are going to finish here in a few months, and the second series of podcasts about the ancient Greeks. Anyway, the Mycenaeans, after having established themselves in the Peloponnesus, apparently engaged in trade with the Minoans and others for some time. They did not immediately set out to sack Crete. And unfortunately, we lack records to straighten out this timeline and explain these events since the Minoan script Linear, Linear A is still indecipherable, and the Mycenaeans either did not possess writing at this time or whatever records they maintained have been lost. In fact, there is some speculation that the Mycenaeans may have learned something about refined civilization from the Minoans, although we should be cautious about depicting the early Mycenaean man as a savage barbarian in need of a bath and a lesson in etiquette. We just don't know enough about this time period or these people to really be sure of any details. And what we do know about the Mycenaeans, I am going to save for the next series of podcasts. But apparently, the Mycenaeans did learn enough sea craft to reach Crete in large numbers, Perhaps they raided the coast like the Vikings would do in France and Britain and elsewhere some 2,000 years later. Or perhaps it was a massive single invasion. All we know today is that they appear to have been in control of Crete by some time in the 14th century BC. They probably were not operating a greater Mycenaean state, but rather were more likely a loosely banded together collection of city-states. Once again, as with all the civilizations already described in this podcast, we see how societies and realms at all points in history go back and forth between eras of centralization and feudal division. There seems to be contrary spirits in men, both to create order and to destroy it, to till the ground with the wreckage of last year's civilization and see what springs up from the ground when the growing season comes again. With good reason, perhaps, the writer of Ecclesiastes, a biblical book likely written after Israelite civilization had fallen apart, with good reason, this writer speaks of a time to tear down and a time to build. All cultures that have lived through the rise and fall of the civilizations in which they originated seem to incorporate this concept into their belief, that the gods giveth and they taketh away. Perhaps downfall is too strong a word to use when describing the decline of the Minoans. Maybe downfall is always too strong a word. The Minoans did not disappear after the Mycenaean invasion. In fact, some interpretations and timelines suggest that the most famous king of the Minoans, Minos himself, from the Greek myth of the Minotaur, may have ruled during the period after the Mycenaean attack, rather than during the Golden Age of Crete in which case he would have been a Mycenaean ruler rather than a Minoan, which is odd because we ended up naming the earlier civilization after him. No, the civilization continued on the island of Crete after the Mycenaeans sacked the cities, but never again would the island exert the great influence that it had possessed in the previous centuries. 
From now on, it would just be a province of greater powers. After the Greeks, the Romans would rule here. Sometimes there would be no single ruler or appointed governor, and the island would, was just a warring hive of city-states. Later, the Arabs would conquer the island, and after them, a long period of Turkish-Ottoman rule continued until the 20th century. But I have departed excessively from the timeline of this podcast. To put it simply, by sometime around the 14th century BC, Crete's time at the forefront of Western civilization had come and gone. Now the Phoenicians, already described in a previous episode, would fill the power vacuum on the high seas, and in the Aegean, the Mycenaeans and their Greek descendants would become dominant regionally until the reign of Alexander the Great, when they achieved a brief hegemony over the civilizations of the Near East and a longer domination over Egypt. In the next episode, we will actually return to Egypt. That will be the last full episode devoted to the land along the Nile River. After that, there are a few other matters to discuss, including the ancient Israelites and the Persian Empire, before we continue on to the ancient Greeks. As I move things along towards the end of this first series, I encourage you to visit the website western-traditions.org, that is western-traditions.org, and have a look around. You can find some interesting books to read there, not only about history, but also about philosophy and technology and every concept that has impacted the development of Western history. Links to all the episodes are there as well, and if you wish, you can support the podcast through Patreon or through PayPal. And this concludes episode 21. Until next time, please check out the website, and thank you for listening to the Western Traditions Podcast. <laughs>